Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I am always am very thrilled that we have Dr. Marty Greer here to lead us through some of the intricacies of veterinary medicine. And just thank you, Marty. You know, I always appreciate your time. Well, I'm happy to be here. Today, we talked a while back in sort of the podcast on congenital versus hereditary and some of those things. We talked about hernias sort of as a glancing one-off. And so now today we're going to take that into a deep dive on hernias. All right, guys, are you planning your next litter of puppies? Or maybe you just finished your foundation bitch and you're ready to start health testing. Embark, creator of the highest rated dog DNA tests on the market, offers specialized testing just for breeders. And while they're offering a few different tests, only the Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit was made to provide breed-relevant disease screening for your purebred dogs. It includes traits testing, such as coat color and body size, DLA diversity testing, breed ancestry, easy-to-download OFA submission reports, and the only genetic coefficient of inbreeding test available. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to enhance their breeding program, including me, through screening for breed-specific genetic conditions, understanding traits, and identifying genetic diversity. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK to take $20 off a full-priced Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK. So welcome, Marty. Tell us all about it. (laughs) Oh, there's so much to talk about with hernias. It's amazing. And in the last three weeks, I've seen way too many, way too many. And so talk to me about that because hernias to me are kind of weird. Like I've seen maybe two or three in 40 some odd years breeding dogs. I mean, it's just not something that we encounter in the breeds that I'm involved with. So why are we seeing more of them? Are they specific to specific breeds? Are they different? You said earlier, there's different types of hernias like this. I had no idea. Yeah. So the one most people are familiar with is the umbilical hernia, the one at the belly button. Mm -hmm. Really common, especially in certain breeds. Yes, there's definitely a breed predisposition, which means it's inherited. Anytime you say we see this more often in a particular breed, you have to just assume that it's inherited. And that makes it kind of interesting because we see Bernese Mountain Dogs. We see a lot of the Shih Tzus and the other brachycephalics with them. And we also see them in Nova Scotia ductiling retrievers. And we kind of joke around in veterinary medicine and say, oh my gosh, if it doesn't have an umbilical hernia, I don't think it's really a purebred Bernese Mountain Dog. I mean, Basinjis are the only ones that I've ever seen. Like my one girlfriend, I mean, they all have hernias, right? They all have got a belly button and you just don't even think about it. Right. It's pretty common in certain breeds. So we were at my dad's memorial service last weekend 
rented an Airbnb in this small town in Iowa where my dad and mom grew up and we're sitting on the porch and I had run to the grocery store with my sister to get the chickens. And as I'm at the grocery store, I get this picture texted to me of my nephew's girlfriend, fiance on the porch with a Bernie's mountain dog puppy. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, I'm having a hard time connecting the dots here. Like what is going on? So I get back to the house and it turns out the neighbor for the Airbnb just imported three Bernie's mountain dog puppies. And he is my cousin on my mother's side's best friend from high school. So, and we're talking to him and he's small town Midwest people. I'm just telling you, it's so fabulous. It is totally small town Midwest. So I said to him, oh, well, you know, do you have other Bernese Mountain Dogs? Well, no, we're kind of new in the breed, but I have other breeds. And so he starts listing his breeds that he's been showing in confirmation and AKC for all these years. And I start naming all these people and he knows all the same people I know. So here I am at the Airbnb with this adorable Bernese Mountain Dog puppy. And I said, well, you know, my article is due for the Bernese Mountain Dog Alpenhorn today. So of course I'm not done with it yet because why would I be done the day it's actually due? But I need to write an article and I reach underneath and lo and behold, he's got an umbilical hernia. I'm like, yes. So I now have access to a picture of an actual Bernese Mountain Dog with an actual umbilical hernia. So yes, we joke around and say that they're pretty common. And there are some people who get pretty alarmed about them, some of the geneticists and some of the other people in veterinary medicine. And then there's other people in veterinary medicine who are like, yeah, it's no big deal. It's really not anything to worry about. And I think this is where it gets to be a little bit confusing is there's umbilical hernias, which are a defect in the abdominal wall where the internal organs, usually just fat from the abdominal cavity omentum or falciform ligament, kind of pooch through the little hernia. And it's covered by skin and it's not serious. And we usually fix them when the dog's a little bit older or when we spay the dog or when we neuter him or at a C-section, if you go ahead and breed. And then there's other people who are like, oh my God, you cannot breed this dog. This is a genetic defect. So getting back to genetic defects. So we're kind of coming back to that. But my concern isn't so much with the umbilical hernia, which is a skin covered little pooch, But there's two other abdominal wall defects that we see that are very serious and usually don't have good outcomes. And those are gastroschisis and omphyceles. And as usual, we will put an article up on the webpage so that people can get the spelling and understand it. It'll be in the blog post, guys. Yeah, so it's not going to be like, oh my gosh, how do I spell that? What do I do? How do I write that down? So there's gastroschisis and there's omphyceles. And gastroschisis is where there's an abdominal wall defect, but intestines or other abdominal organs like the liver are protruding through the opening in the abdominal wall. And this one is just usually off to the right side of the belly button or the umbilicus. And it's usually just the intestines that are exposed or other organs without a little sac over them. An omphacele is actually at the umbilicus, so not off the midline, but on the midline. And there's usually a little sack of peritoneal tissue that overlaps the tissue. So there are definitely differences. Now, last week I delivered, on Monday we did three C-sections, and one of the puppies that I delivered did have intestines exposed. There wasn't a sack over them, but it was on the midline. And the intestines were so badly damaged by the time we got the puppy delivered that we were not able to repair it, but sometimes we can. So if the puppy's born into a C-section or if the puppy's born at home and you can get to the veterinary clinic quickly enough, 
and there's organs that are exposed that we can replace into the abdomen and suture it closed, sometimes we can save those puppies. I had one. Yeah, it kind of frees people out. And if they are born at C-section, they're usually glad that they're with us. But the puppy I delivered on Monday, the intestines were so badly damaged as we tried to replace them into the abdominal cavity that they fell apart. So there was just no saving this puppy. You can't put the intestines back together when they're kind of deteriorating in your hands. So that's the difference between an umbilical hernia, a gastroschisis, and an omphacele. Now, we don't completely understand the heritability of those two defects. We know umbilical hernias are inherited, they're genetic. So you can say all day long, oh, the bitch pulled too hard on the umbilical cord and try and make up some kind of an excuse for it. But in reality, they are inherited. So get over it. It's an inherited defect. Now in people that have omphaceles, it's more likely to occur in a teenage mother, a mother that's been a smoker, a mother that drinks alcoholic beverages, and or a mother that's on SSRI antidepressants or is obese. So obesity can happen in our dogs. Teenage mothers can happen in our dogs, but very few of the dogs that I take care of are smokers or drinking alcoholic beverages or taking SSRI. Well, every now and then my dog knocks over a beer bottle and drinks the dregs. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think there's enough there to really cause much damage. And in people now, we're so good at ultrasounding and looking Mm -hmm. at babies Mm -hmm. before when they do those anatomical ultrasounds before birth. Those are often detected before the baby is born. And so sometimes those babies have surgery when they're still in the uterus. Sometimes they have surgery immediately after birth. But many times we know about it. In dogs, we usually are not aware that this is going to happen until, lo and behold, it shows up. So those are the things you need to know about for those umbilical defects. Now, there's other kinds of hernias. There are traumatic hernias, which can happen anywhere on the body. So if a dog gets hit by a car, hit by a bear, you know, all the other things that happen, We can certainly see traumatic hernias happen along the abdominal wall, along the chest wall, anywhere that there's trauma. But the other kinds of hernias that we see that are defects that are probably genetic are going to be an inguinal hernia, which is a hernia in the groin on each side, right in the inner thigh. We can often see those in Shih Tzus, Lhasa's. A lot of the small breed dogs will have inguinal hernias. I just repaired one on an adult male Labrador that had momentum down in his inguinal hernia. And a couple of years ago, I repaired an inguinal hernia on a coonhound puppy that had intestines down in the inguinal hernia. So the scrotum suddenly got really large because the intestines had slid down into it. That was a really cool surgery because I have this great video of pulling the intestines back up into the abdomen. It's cool to me. It's probably not. Okay. You're killing me because this again, why is it? Why do we always have the, oh, that happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) The wire hair pointer and the pug dog. You can just see where this is going to go. The pug dog thought he was very tough and managed somehow, despite all of the precautions that I take, managed to get in with the adult male wire hair intact. And didn't go well. Didn't go well. And the wire hair did not kill him. It didn't even mark him. He just squished him. Oh. And so I wasn't home. My dog sitter told me about it. I'm like, okay. And it was that the testicles started getting really big and hard. And I'm like, something is really wrong about this. And I didn't connect the two. It was far enough apart. And I took him into the vet and his intestines were in his testicles. And yeah, Yeah. it was because he got squished too hard. Yeah, not cool. That was sort of a mind boggling, not gonna lie. (laughs) We've actually had three dogs that have had inguinal hernias with pregnancies or uteruses in them. 
I had one with a uterus that was adhered inside of it. I had two that had a uterus that were pregnant in the hernia. So the puppies, instead of them being in the abdominal cavity, were in the skin, under the skin, through the hernia. So none of those things are good. So not good. Any of those things to happen. Not good. And yeah, so not. how are we identifying that we have this problem? I mean, in my case, the dog had big, hard testicles. You know, we can figure that out. But what are some of the things people are looking for? What's an identifying you know, what's our symptoms, what's our causes, all that kind of stuff. So checking for inguinal and umbilical hernias should happen at your routine physical exams, whether you are taking in a new puppy that is a puppy that you're purchasing, whether it's a puppy in a litter of puppies that you're preparing for sale, or whether it's an adult dog at the regular veterinary visits, those are all things that should be palpated. So frequently you can tell on palpation, sometimes it takes surgical intervention to determine exactly what's going on. So those are the inguinal hernias. You hear a lot of inguinal hernias in older people, especially older men, lifted too many things that are too heavy, like you should not pick up the refrigerator and put it in the back of the truck because then you're going to have a hernia. So those are all things that are well known on the human side as well. Then there's diaphragmatic hernias, which is a tear through the diaphragm. Those can be inherited or traumatic. So that the diaphragm tears and instead of all the abdominal organs staying behind the diaphragm and the lungs and the heart staying in front of the diaphragm, intestines, stomach, liver, all those things can go up into the chest cavity. That's bad. Those are diagnosed on x-ray. And then there is a peritoneal pericardial diaphragmatic hernia, PPHD for short. And again, that's usually a congenital problem where organs from the abdominal cavity end up not just in the chest, but in the pericardial sac. So again, that's diagnosed on x-ray. That's really, really, really rare. But I did have one bitch that came to us many years ago that was pregnant and had a history of trauma, but we had not seen the dog for the trauma. And she came in pregnant, acutely having trouble breathing. And by the time we got the x-ray taken and realized that her diaphragm had torn and she had a pregnancy up in her chest cavity, it was too late. We couldn't save her. Those are, as you can imagine, pretty serious things to have happen. So again, those are not terribly common, but it is something to be aware of. So if your vet is kind of scratching their head saying, I don't really understand what this x-ray is telling me, just be aware that those things can happen. On the diaphragmatic hernias, talk to us about signs and symptoms on those. I had a friend who went through this and it was really an instructive thing that was pretty terrifying. Yeah, usually they're traumatic, but they can happen, like I said, congenitally or be born with a defect. So x-ray is really going to be the diagnostic tool. You look both on the x-ray with the dog laying on its side and with them laying on their back or on their chest. So you get all views and you take a look. And if you can't see both arms of the diaphragm and you can see organs that shouldn't be up in the chest cavity or in the pericardial sac, you have a pretty good diagnosis. Those are not fun to fix. Those are going to require, in most cases, a board-certified surgeon with a dedicated anesthesiologist because they are complex procedures, complex cases. I've seen a few of them, and they oftentimes don't end up turning out to be good outcomes. We had one that we fixed, and the dog's liver had been in the chest cavity for a long time, and it was pretty badly cirrhotic, and just a lot of bad stuff happens. So if you do think you have one of these, get an x-ray. Okay. So how are you going to think that? Like, how old are these dogs? What symptoms are they exhibiting? How am I going to look at my dog and say, clearly it's guts are in its <laughs> diaphragm. <laughs> yeah. It's not really clear other than the dog is going to show signs of respiratory distress, usually not a cough, but respiratory distress. And there may have been 
a past history or a current history of trauma. If the dog is injured, like hit by a car, hit by a truck, hit by a tractor, whatever the trauma happens to be, you should have chest x-rays taken. If your veterinarian looks at the dog and says, yeah, I think everything's okay, but we should probably take an x-ray, you should say yes. Mm -hmm. You just want to make sure that there's not damage to the pulmonary region, that there's not a hernia. You just want to check it out because sometimes from the outside, the dog doesn't look like they're in that much trouble. But within a few days to a few years, it can actually happen years later. So just spend the extra money, the Mm -hmm. extra 200 bucks and get the x-ray of the chest and have the radiologist look at it and give you a good solid opinion of what's going on. So if there's any kind of blunt trauma to the dog, just, just take an x-ray. Absolutely. And then you said sometimes you're seeing these congenitally. So are you seeing these on failure to thrive puppies or where are we seeing this in younger and newborns and neonates? Yeah, it can be failure to thrive puppies. It can be a lot of other places. So usually either failure to thrive or respiratory distress. Mm -hmm. And an x-ray is almost always diagnostic. It's a pretty simple, straightforward diagnosis. And if there's any question about whether the organs are where they're supposed to be, a little bit of barium down into the stomach can give you a pretty good highlight of what's going on. So again, you know, just spend the money on the diagnostics. If your vet thinks or your emergency vet thinks that you should have an x-ray, the answer is yes. Yes, everybody send your dogs home with Trupanion. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, they even have the bad This is like the real life in the actual talking part of the advertisement, really and truly. But if you do have a hernia, it's going to be thousands of dollars to fix mm-hmm. it. It may be right. five. That's why I'm saying dollars. send your puppy home with Trupanion. Yeah. I mean, why take a chance? Just yeah. spend the money. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, you guys. If you are part of a national breed club in the U.S. or Canada, I need you to listen up. My partners at Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet, have just launched a super exciting national breed club referral program. I mean, I'm saying, you guys have heard me talk about Trupanion's breeder support program before, and this is what gives you access to a special coverage offer for your litters that waives waiting periods for your puppies when you send them home. Now you can partner with Trupanion directly to share this incredible free program with the breeders in your club. And the best part, your club earns sponsorship support in return for every member that joins the program. It's pretty much of a win-win, guys. If you're interested and want to learn more, head to my partner page at puredogtuck.com and click on the link at Trupanion. Okay, so is that all the kinds of hernias or there's more kinds of hernias? Because I heard you say to me that there's a million different kinds of hernias. <laughs> well, that's because trauma can cause a hernia anywhere. So that's okay. where that variable comes in. But that's pretty much all that we see are going to be umbilical hernia, inguinal hernia, diaphragmatic hernia, peritoneal pericardial hernia, and then a traumatic hernia. So those are generally going to be everything that plays a role. So then we get back to the original discussion Mm -hmm. of umbilical hernias and the fact that these probably are genetic or probably are inherited. So I usually score these, and I think we've talked about before how we score genetically. This is my personal scoring system. This doesn't necessarily mean that every veterinarian is going to have the same opinion or every breeder or every dog owner is going to have the same opinion. But I typically score things on a scale of one through three. And I don't think umbilical hernias are the same defect as omphaceles and gastroschisis. Now, that's perhaps debatable with other geneticists, 
but I personally think that an umbilical hernia is a relatively minor problem that doesn't generally lead to other serious problems unless it's a big hernia and you breed the dog and she has a pregnancy and the hernia gets larger during the pregnancy because of the weight of the puppies in the uterus, in which case fixing it before she's bred is probably a good idea. Well, and talk to me again. I know we talked about this the last time we kind of covered hernias, but we can speak to it real quick. My understanding of the rule of thumb is if the hernia is the size of my pinky or smaller, it's not even worth repairing. If it's bigger than that, it should be repaired at eight, 10 weeks, go home time. Yeah. And there's a lot of discussion about that. Some people put it off and do it when they spay the dog Mm -hmm. so that they're under anesthesia anyway. And the incision is just a little bit further forward. Mm -hmm. There's reducible and non-reducible hernias. That's what I was going to have you speak. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really important distinction because if it's closed with a little bit of fat through it, it's non-reducible. So it means that that fat is trapped and it's not going to get bigger with a pregnancy. It's not going to get bigger as the dog gets older. Nothing is going to drop into the hernia and get strangulated. The concern is with a bigger hernia that sometimes abdominal contents can be herniated and get trapped and strangulated. Now, in my experience, I've seen one of those. And when I was doing my research to write this article for the Bernese Mountain Dogs, I was reading a lot of information on VIN. And in about 70 years of veterinary practice, one person had seen a strangulated umbilical hernia. So it is not common at all. Oh, there is one hernia I forgot to talk about, and that's the perineal hernia which is a whole different discussion and doesn't have anything to do with this. So we can circle back to that. But anyway, I think that it's important that we know that it's genetic, that we should fix it. And Mm -hmm. at some point it should be corrected. If it's non-reducible or reducible, it should be fixed at the time the dog is spayed. Sometimes we'll do it when we do a gastropexy. Sometimes we'll do it at C-section if it hasn't gotten larger. Anytime they're going under for something else. Exactly. It's easy to fix. It's no big deal. They don't require any complicated surgical procedure. They don't require mesh. I've fixed them over the years, big, giant, little ones, big ones, all kinds of them. They're just really pretty straightforward to fix. So most veterinarians are going to have this in their skill set, and it's not difficult to repair. It would be a rare occurrence that an umbilical hernia would be a difficult repair or life-threatening. So I don't get alarmed about it. I think they're relatively simple. AKC does allow those dogs to have a repair and still be shown in the AKC according to their website. So I think that's important. So to me, that's a level one defect. It's up there with a retained testicle. The problem with retained testicles, extra eyelashes, entropia, and any of those things, they get fixed. You fix them once. It's no big deal. AKC doesn't like it when you do the other ones. I understand that. But it's no big deal. The dog doesn't die from it. It's not life-threatening, life-altering, life-shortening. It doesn't require long-term management. You fix it once it's done. To me, level two are things that require long-term maintenance, which are going to be hypothyroidism, anxiety, allergies, something that requires long-term medication, but it isn't life-changing, life-altering, life-shortening. And to me, level three are things that are life-threatening, life-altering, life-shortening. And that includes bad temperament for me. I will not put up with bad temperament. I just flat out won't do it. It includes seizures, serious orthopedic disorders like hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, OCD, cruciate ruptures, and then a lot of kinds of cancer. And a lot of the cancers we currently don't have DNA tests for, but I think In the next 10 years, we'll probably have DNA tests for malignant histiocytosis, hemangiosarcomas, osteosarcomas, lymphosarcoma. They're really hard at work to try and diagnose these. And to me, those are level three. Those are going to change the dog's quality of life, length of life, and your quality of life with that pet. So I think those are the things we need to eliminate first. The problem is umbilical hernias, retained testicles, dystichia, and 
Entropion are things that you can find those at the first veterinary visit at eight weeks of age. And so a lot of veterinarians and a lot of breeders are kicking those dogs out of the gene pool. And to me, those are minor problems. They are not going to cause long-term problems, but that's my take on it. And certainly not everybody's. Right. Well, and a couple things, you know, in that conversation, everybody has their three. And I personally, I put thyroid as a three. Yeah. Because it is all of those things if it isn't medicated. Correct. And it is genetic. Yes. And the puppies that dog produces may have a different, more serious autoimmune disease. Exactly. And so for me, I'll work with fair hips or maybe even mild hips, depending on the breed. But if it's hypothyroid, it's out. That's me. Yeah. But we all have to have our own scoring system. We all have to pick our battles. And every breed is going to be a little bit different. Every Mm -hmm. breeder and every pet owner is a little different. So it is not for me to dictate. It's for me to say, I think we need to score them on some kind of a basis so that we're not throwing out every single dog with a genetic defect because there is no perfect dog and we all have something wrong with us. I'm nearsighted. My mom had hip dysplasia. My dad had Crohn's disease. Yeah. Don't breed. You know, I should not have been. I'm spay for pet quality on purpose. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But here I am. So. That's the way it goes. So those are the things I think we need to talk about. So then there's the perineal hernia, which is really, really, really uncommon. And I forgot about throwing that in. It's in intact male dogs that are elderly, older to elderly. It does cause a hernia next to the rectum, sometimes on one side, sometimes on both sides. And again, organs can protrude through those. Rarely the bladder can come through. More commonly, the intestines come through. Again, usually doesn't cause entrapment, but it is a difficult surgery to correct, a difficult area to correct. It's like sewing together wet Kleenex. So I usually send those to a surgeon. I send diaphragmatic hernias to a surgeon, but an umbilical hernia and an inguinal hernia, pretty much any veterinarian with any kind of skill set in surgery can manage those. So don't require mesh, don't require complicated surgeries, don't require difficult suture patterns. They're pretty much just, that's the way they are. Every time I think about this, I think about my puppy that I had that had C-section. It was a huge litter and we were just rubbing her and all of a sudden her guts were out. We're like, oh dear. And, you know, I am of the old school that we let those go to heaven, that that's not something I encourage. But I was encouraged and my friend and one of the other vets said, no, we can do this. We can do this. And I said, okay. So we stuffed her little guts in there and sewed her up and said, okay, I'll see what happens. And that little dog, She's still alive. (laughs) She was a miracle. She lived. She was tough. I took her back and she was the size of a small cat. And Heidi, my vet, had to completely rebuild the entire abdominal wall. Like she had to create it out of whole cloth. Sewed her back up again and she lived through that one too. So yeah. Yeah. She is a miracle puppy. Yeah. And there are definitely miracles. And then sometimes we do see midline defects that include the chest cavity being open with the heart exposed. Mm. Those are somewhat horrifying because those puppies usually are born not only with a beating heart, but a beating heart that you can see because the heart is exposed. Those I have never successfully been able to repair because there's not enough chest wall. There's not enough rib, not enough to put back together. The lungs are involved. The lungs are deflated. They're a mess. So those usually either will die very shortly after birth or will euthanize those. But that's a whole different discussion. And there are certainly other midline defects that we can see, which are beyond the scope of today's conversation. Absolutely. And we always talk about basic midline defect prevention 
-hmm. with our bitches when we're breeding them, folic acid supplementation. Yes. And that that will help, but that isn't going to alter a genetic situation. No, but it can reduce them by half to two thirds in some mm -hmm. of the studies that we've seen. There's one study from Poland that showed that there was a reduction. So there are certainly variables that need to be taken into account, but depending on the breed you have, depending on the genetics you have, if you have a dog that throws this, probably shouldn't keep breeding them. But yeah, folic acid in appropriate quantities can frequently reduce the risk of it. But yes, these are genetic defects and no one wants to breed genetic defects into their line. No breeder I know gets up in the morning and says, you know what, I'm going to breed dogs with genetic defects because you know, that's what we hear clients say. Oh yeah, you know, those breeders. Yeah, no, we're not deliberately breeding dogs that have a genetic defect that's life-shortening, life-altering, and life-threatening. So, yep. All right. Well, Marty, thank you so very much for your time. As always, I will return you to grandma duty and <laughs> we will talk again soon. All right. As always, it's great to talk to you. Revival Animal Health is a proud sponsor of Pure Dog Talk. Revival Animal Health understands your commitment as a dog breeder. And now's your opportunity to learn what so many breeders already know. Revival is the place to turn for all your dog breeding needs. As the pet vaccine experts, Revival is number one in selection for all your immunization needs, now with Spectra vaccines available. Breeders trust Revival to protect their moms and get their pups off to a great start. Shop Revival's complete line of breeding products from pregnancy, whelping, and newborn care to Revival's own reproductive and neonatal health brand, Breeder's Edge. And during the month of August, visit RevivalAnimal.com and save $10 on your first order with code PUREDOGTALK. That's code PUREDOGTALK. This offer is good through the end of August. Remember, code PUREDOGTALK will save you $10 on your first order only at RevivalAnimal.com. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. The Pure Dog Talk patrons support the work we do here by contributing to our crowdsourcing campaign. In return for their generosity that keeps the MP3s rolling, patrons are invited to a private Facebook community. And that's where dog people, all of us together, can share, applaud, and commiserate. We have monthly after dark gatherings where we can, you know, raise a glass and provide a virtual get together for the entire group. I'm also so, 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 so excited about a very cool new feature that will be for patrons only making its debut in the next few weeks. So be on the lookout. There will be a chance available to you to sign up for the Pure Pep Talk. Pure Pep Talk is Pure Dog Talk's weekly mentoring message. Quick, upbeat, actionable tips and tools that you can use right now. Sign up today and get a ping tomorrow. Join the best community in purebred dogs. Stop by www.puredogtalk.com. Click the box right there at the top of the page. I might add, PSPS, 
finally, the first of what will be many curated ebook audiobook options that is drawn from the Pure Dog Talk archives has drumroll hit the cloud. Auntie Laura's Beginner's Guide to Show Dogs is the perfect compilation for yourself, a friend, your puppy buyers, your kennel club, your 4-H club. Shop the book tab on the website and check it out. Always remember, you guys, your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.